part of the reason for starting this nonprofit was that we're not doing preventative behavior care the way that I'd like to be. You know, we spend a lot of money as a society on things like spay and neuter and vaccination clinics and things like that. But we are spending no money as a society on preventative behavior care in any kind of concerted way. And so that's one of our goals. Hi, welcome back to Telltale Dog, the podcast. I'm your host, certified dog trainer, Elizabeth Silverstein. And I have with me Miranda Hitchcock, a certified dog trainer who is the founder of Every Dog Behavior and Training. Hi, Miranda. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for willing to be on. I've been following your um, Every Dog Austin account for a while. I know you do some work with um, Juliana of JW uh, Dog Training. So um, thank you so much for being willing to chat a little bit more about what you do. Absolutely. So I wanted to start where you began and it looks like your journey began in Maryland. Is that where you were born and raised? Yeah, born and raised in Maryland and sort of accidentally fell down the rabbit hole uh, of becoming a shelter volunteer as a dog walker with no dog experience whatsoever. And that quickly changed, you know, definitely went down pretty quickly down that rabbit hole Um, was fortunate enough to have Beth Mullen, who's on the CCPDT board there, um, who was working as a a behavior consultant for the shelter. So got to know her and then got to know Juliana through through Beth, Um, you know, just learned more and more about behavior in the shelter world and then decided to start doing some private training, worked with both of them at Dog Latin Dog Training in the DC and Maryland area before I ended up moving out to Austin for shelter work. Okay. And when, when did you start volunteering at the animal shelter? What year was that? Oh gosh, that was back in 2014. Feels like forever ago. Yeah. I mean, after 2020, everything is a little yeah. time ago. Time right? is a weird thing now. It doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, so what, what, um, what got you interested in volunteering? Were you working at the time as well? Is this your second career? What was going on there? Yeah, I, I feel like I've had many, many accidental careers. At the time, I was working for a travel company that did volunteer travel programs for high school students all over the world. So we, you know, we're we're talking a lot with these kids, kind of spreading the gospel of volunteer work and how important it is. And I had a moment where I realized that all of my volunteer work had been through the company and that I hadn't really done anything for myself in a while. So I found my local animal shelter and signed up to be a dog walker and uh, everything just kind of went from there. And how did you make that transition? Was that with dog Latin dog training, the puppy classes and the reactive fearful dog classes? Yeah. So I was still working at the shelter at the time and then decided that, you know, the, the position wasn't right for me. I wasn't able to get what I wanted out of it. So I'd been doing some training for dog Latin. I was also doing some training classes through Your Dog's Friend, which is a nonprofit in Rockville, Maryland. So really just getting more into the behavior side and starting to collect hours towards my CPDT through them. What was that moment like when you caught, I guess, the bug of dog training? What was that? Was there, was there a moment for you that you were like, I love this. I want to do more of it. You know, I wish that there were a specific moment. I think like so many people, one of the things that really caught me was working with my first long stay dog at the shelter. 
And granted, she didn't really have behavior issues. She was just, you know, a big sort of over, overly enthusiastic pity type dog that had been in the shelter for a while. And she was wonderful, but it didn't really occur to me how many different behavior issues were involved at that time. I think later it was things like getting really interested in playgroup programs and different evaluation styles and seeing dogs who just wanted so badly to be good and functional dogs, but just were lacking a lot of the appropriate skill sets. I think a lot of that really spurred my desire to work with these guys and also just kind of the magic of you know, working, working with shelter dogs and then going into something like a puppy class where you see these dogs that just learn so quickly. And I think seeing that beauty of, you know, working with dogs who are legitimately pretty difficult, you know, they, they're in a terrible environment for learning. They already have some habits that are not super great. You know, they're, they're really struggling. And then going into a puppy class where you have this blank slate and they learn things so quickly and it is so magical to see it, it really kind of makes you look at how can we make this easier for all of our dogs? How can we give people that same excitement of, oh my gosh, my dog learned to sit. He is so smart, right? Like this, this real excitement that we can give to people. So I think that that was a, there were many points in time where I went, oh, this is really quite cool, but there wasn't one specific moment. And I also, I love that you mentioned that enthusiasm and that eagerness of trying to communicate because dogs try so hard and they're so forgiving. And some, and there's this, this thing I've noticed where us human beings, we tend to think that dogs just innately know the English language and innately know what we expect of them. And then it's so easy to get frustrated when they're not responding the way that we want them to. And I think people also don't understand the amount of repetition and reinforcement that has to happen for them to understand. Like with puppies, for example, right? It's not just you, you redirect your puppy once, you're redirecting your puppy 50 million times to not do the thing. So, and but when they get it and they understand the rules, I kind of, it seems to me there's almost a relief there. Like they understand the rules, they understand how to communicate and they want to offer that because they get it now. So you then moved to Austin. So Austin, Texas is very different from the Northeast. <laughs> that was yeah. my, my shock from Pennsylvania, New Jersey to Arkansas. So um, what year did you move to Austin? Oh, I moved out here in... 2017. So I moved out here for a program with Austin Pets Alive and Austin Animal Center working in leadership in no-kill sheltering. And it was definitely a shock. There was a lot of excitement, a, a lot of shifting expectations and shifting how I thought about things within shelter behavior, you know, coming from a place where we did safer evaluations on every dog before it could be adopted to a place where, you know, they were running daily play groups and there weren't really formal assessments in terms of some of these standardized assessments, but seeing the kinds of dogs that they were able to adopt out successfully and the differences in expectations among the shelter community about what was savable and what wasn't, both from a, a medical and a behavioral perspective, um, just a very, very different world and a different community. You know, it, it was definitely eye-opening, but the, I think the biggest thing that it had an impact on me with was that Hurricane Harvey came that fall when I'd been here for a few months. And I ended up being in Houston for about seven months after Hurricane Harvey running um, sort of a pop-up shelter out of an abandoned grocery store, which 
led to a lot of questions and a lot of thinking about, you know, the behaviors of dogs and what is safe and, and what can we do in these really limited environments? You know, we, we ended up running playgroups out of that abandoned grocery store, you know, out of a corner that we fenced in, but some major challenges with dealing with dogs who are in incredibly stressful environments and, you know, evaluating what dogs we were able to pull and what dogs we were able to work with in that context versus coming from an open admission shelter where, you know, whatever comes through your door is whatever you comes through your door and you just have to make do with it and different, different expectations in terms of public safety and legal stuff, you know, whether you're with a municipal shelter versus a private rescue, it was just a very interesting world and a very, a very hard thing, but you know, sheltering is a, a really complicated beast when it comes to behavior for a lot of reasons. Part of the reason I end up leave, I ended up leaving sheltering world was a, a feeling that oftentimes shelters are and rescues are hiring behavior professionals, but they're hiring them with the understanding that those behavior professionals will fix all of the dogs rather than the understanding that the behavior professionals will give you, you know, professional risk assessments and, and opinions and experiences with these dogs. And sometimes they will say, I don't think this dog is fixable. I don't think this dog is adoptable, but you know, a question a fellow trainer asked recently was, you know, why, why do shelters hire behavior professionals if they're going to not listen to them? Um, and, and this is a thing that I think is really, really problematic, especially when we get into places that are really invested emotionally in, in no kill or in, not making the wrong decision. But I do think that sometimes we lose sight of both the human side and the, the resource allocation side. So in, in sheltering, one of the things that, that made my partner Michelle and I decide to, to launch this nonprofit was that we kept seeing the same kinds of dogs entering the shelter. And some of them were dogs where we went, mm, you know, I don't know that we could have gotten to you and to fix this problem. But most of them, we go, if I'd gotten you in a puppy class, if I'd gotten to you a year ago, if I'd been able to help your family, you know, set up the environment differently when they first brought you home, I don't think you would be here. And I don't think you would have these behavior issues. And so that's really one of the things that was important for us was, can we set, spend, you know, $100 on a puppy that sets it up for a functional life in a home versus getting a dog who has already made some, some really unfortunate decisions, done some really unfortunate things, and then trying to spend $5,000 to send it somewhere so that someone can try to fix it. You know, you, you can't undo those things. There are some times where management can do it, but uh, you know, most of these behavior problems are not a you know, board and train fix it. So that's really for us where we kept seeing a lot of these behavior issues coming in and it just feels like we're on the wrong side of things. If we're just trying to treat severe behavior issues with shelter staff on the back end, it just seems like that's not where we need to be working. So that was really one of the things that, that led us to start this nonprofit is, is the idea that we need to be catching people and catching their dogs before those problems become that significant. Okay. And I do want to touch on here as well, because I think, I think sometimes the temptation is if I get a puppy, it is a bit blank slate, there will be no issues. But I do want to point out like what you're saying is that the management and that setting up for success is crucial. Often what happens is it doesn't matter, you know, if you get a puppy, if you're not setting that puppy up for success and sometimes genetics, right? There's also what there's, they're finding 60% 
is genetics at this point, which is wild to me. So one thing that I will say about that is, uh, so I'm doing a master's program right now in, in animal behavior. And when it comes to the genetics and the genetic impact on behavior, the truth is that we don't have any idea. Okay. Um, there, are, there are certain behaviors in certain contexts within certain breeds or within certain groups of dogs where we've been able to identify that, you know, we think this much of fearfulness is likely due to genetics versus the environment, but that is incredibly limited. So I hear people throw out numbers that are like aggression is 10 to 40%, you know, uh, genetic or this thing. The truth is that with most of this, even with very simple behaviors that are easy to measure, it's incredibly difficult to identify how much of that is genetic. And part of it is that there are so many other factors that can be linked to that. So we know that epigenetics is a factor and that it's related to, you know, maternal care that they receive in the first four to six weeks, right? We also know that intrauterine impacts. So if mom's really stressed, we know that that's going to have a huge impact on the babies. That's not actually genetic, but it's still, I think we, we sort of lump in all of the uncontrollable early life things into this genetic component. So we know that it matters. And we know that because we see baby puppies that are already super fearful. We sometimes see baby puppies that already are game and will go after other puppies. Like we see some really weird abnormal stuff sometimes, right? So we know that these things are a factor, but we don't know what the overall things look like. And even if we knew that 40% of, you know, this kind of behavior was genetic, that wouldn't necessarily tell us that 40% of that individual dog's behavior. It just tells us the, the amount of variation across the population. So without getting too technical, I, I do think that that's an important place to be because otherwise we assume that it's like a majority of this or a majority of that. But absolutely, when it comes to puppies, there's a lot that's still out of our control. And there are things that can happen. There are so many times where, you know, you have one bad experience and even though you've done a great job socializing, you've got a puppy from a great breeder that was doing wonderful stuff. And now you have a puppy who's fearful, you know? So there's, there's a, there's a lot we can control and there's a lot we can't control. And so you know, we know we're going to end up with dogs with behavior issues, regardless of even if everyone did all the right things all the time, right? It's just part of life. Um, but yeah, puppies, sometimes people are like, I'm going to get a puppy so I can make it exactly what I want it. And I go, oh, there's a lot of risks with that, right? Like it is not, it is not a perfect system. If, if only it works like that. Yes. And thank you for clearing that up. Cause that's a big thing that's been going around social media right now is that 40, 60%. So I appreciate yeah, the clarification yeah. and there is so many variable. I just, uh, I guess what I get a little nervous about is when people disregard the older dogs because of their fears of those behaviors, especially when you're bringing that dog into a home where maybe there's children, especially small children, but that all goes back to management, right? And then taking that time with the dog and having a, a as best understanding of the behaviors as you can, and if that will fit into your home. Yeah, I absolutely, I, I often with folks, you know, I think there's, there are many great reasons to get a puppy, right? Like there are a lot of reasons why getting a puppy from a reputable breeder for a specific thing. There are a lot of reasons why people choose that. I think sometimes it's this, again, this sort of like lassie Disney dog idea of like, I will get the puppy and because I will be raising it, it will be perfect and it will love everything and it'll be great and it'll be easy. And then they hit the, the actual puppy stage and they have a shark 
and it's peeing on everything and it's chewing on the children and you know the socialization is a nightmare and then it hits six months old and it's counter surfing and then at some point it doesn't love all the dogs and they're panicking right so I think part of it is I'm a big fan of you know families who really need a dog who's going to be good with everybody going to a shelter and finding an adult dog that already has notes that say like tolerant with the kids, you know, really likes other dogs, gets along with cats, you know, was only surrendered because family had to move and couldn't take the dog. Like that is the dog I would get. I would rather do that than a puppy because I think with puppies, again, there's, there's high risk and high reward, right? It, it, it totally depends, but it's a little bit more of that you don't know who that dog's going to be at two versus if you get that three-year-old's dog and you already know kind of who they are, you have a much better chance of knowing who they're going to be, you know, several years down the line. So it's, it's a mix. I try not to be the person who, you know, coming from shelter world, there was definitely a deep bias against uh, buying dogs and buying bred dogs. Now I'm a little bit more like, Hey, there are different choices for different people. But I do think that that's a place where I go, getting a puppy is not the magic answer to making sure that your dog gets along with your kids and within your lifestyle. It can be part of the answer, but it it doesn't fix everything. And it's a heck of a lot of work. And a lot of puppy parents come to me absolutely panicking, you know, that everything is not going the way that they want it to be going just because raising a puppy can be really hard. It's so hard. And then people think they get two and that's going to make it easier. And they've just doubled their load. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. they're not kittens. They're not, they're not kittens. No. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you're coming from the shelter world. You're seeing that if people just had help, if they had accessibility before the issues became too much, how did you make that transition to starting every dog behavior and training and opening up this nonprofit? I left the shelter again because it was insane to me to see the culture of politics in Austin be overriding the best information from knowledgeable behavior professionals. And that was really scary to me. And just from an ethical perspective, it didn't feel like I could keep doing that. So I left the shelter, but before doing that, I'd been um, our operations manager. So I oversaw our animal care and our behavior team. And I had hired an awesome woman named Michelle Mendoza to be part of our behavior team. And so when I left, she and I, you know, she's the one who was like, hey, you, you talked about this nonprofit you worked for back in Maryland called Your Dog's Friend. And we started talking about it. And, you know, I'm still in communication with YDF. They're awesome. But there were places where I went, you know, I think this is a cool model there are things I want to do with it that they haven't done with it yet. There are places that I want to go with it where I think we could make even more of an impact. And it was just sort of a, a thing that we were talking about until it wasn't. And I credit her for that because she's really the one who allowed me to think of this as a potential actual option and not just a pie in the sky idea. So we launched in February of 2020, uh, in late February, (laughs) approximately two weeks before lockdown started. So super ideal time to uh, start a nonprofit. But in some ways, it actually, I think, allowed us to explore some options that were really powerful for us. So we ended up, you know, moving to a lot of virtual things. And now we will never go back. It allows us to do so much for so many people 
especially for folks who are in areas where, you know, they don't have access to someone great, you know, they don't have access to a trainer who knows what they're doing or who has experience with behavior issues. So virtual training has been amazing for a lot of reasons. We do in-person work as well, and we launched classes this summer, but, you know, I think that that's been a really huge thing for us. It has also allowed us to it's forced us to take certain things slow and really think about what we wanted to do and who we wanted to work with and how we could achieve those goals. We are certainly not there. The thing that I I keep mentioning to folks is like, we are a great idea. In practice, we are doing such a small portion of what we want to be doing. We have these big old goals um, and we're still really little. So don't look at us as though we have figured it out and are, you know, have done all the things. It is here are the things we want to do and we think those are really important and we're just trying to chug along as we can. So, you know, we we launched in 2020 and offered, you know, free virtual consults for a while. We started doing our free webinar series, which has been really lovely. Um, you know, featuring local trainers as well as some some national trainers and behavior professionals. In early this year, we started offering Spanish training, and that was really exciting for us. And then we launched classes this summer. So it's been really exciting, you know, never as quickly as we want to, just like impatient trainers. You know, we want to we want to do all the things all the time, but slowly but surely we're we're increasing what we can offer to the community. And how are you getting your funding? Yeah. So the, the beauty of the way that we work is that we do offer paid services. And so to some degree, the organization can support itself just like a, a trainer would, except that we are offering low cost services. So there's not nearly as much of kind of a profit margin in there. The idea is that those things support us to the point where we can pay trainers and we can also offer you know, free and low cost things that are built into our, our model. But then donations are really the, the key part that allows us to do more of the outreach and more of the specific programming that we want to do. And so a lot of what we've been able to do is just kind of focus more on, on that business side, just knowing that we're new. And sometimes donors don't want to give money to a brand new organization and they, they don't know yet what it's going to accomplish. So we're, you know, we're excited for for this fall and for our first Giving Tuesday and our first like real fundraising season. Now that we have some stuff to show people like, Hey, this is, this is working and it's making a difference in people's lives. So, but yeah, that's, that's the idea is that there's the business side that allows us to kind of build some stability, make sure that we can hire and contract with trainers who can make a living wage. And, you know, that's a really important piece for us as well, while also being able to take in donations that let us do a lot of the really cool stuff that we think needs to happen within the community. Yeah, it's kind of a conundrum, I think, in the training world to look at some different aspects of there's training that is so expensive and people starting a certain type of training straight off the bat where they're charging so much money. And I think it, it really, and it's so emotional. So people will fork out a lot of money for training, but if there's not the results or something happens or it gets worse, so it can be a tricky line to walk sometimes. And then there's the polar of the different types of training methods too. And people making some hard choices because they think it's going to fix their dog when it doesn't. There's, there's a lot of desperation in that. And I think, you know, one of the things again, that we looked at, so we talked about part of the reason for starting this nonprofit was that we're not doing preventative behavior care the way that I'd like to be. You know, we spend a lot of money as a society on things like spay and neuter and vaccination clinics and things like that. But we are spending no money as a society on preventative behavior care in any kind of 
concerted way. And so that's one of our goals. The other piece is that much like sheltering and rescue tends to skew heavily towards white people. It tends to skew heavily towards women. It tends to skew heavily towards middle and upper income. And these are places where within dog training, we see a lot of the same issues, especially when you're looking at positive reinforcement training, most of our trainers are white women. And so we have a number of problems with this. And so as, you know, as a white woman, you know, this is, this is not to knock them. You know, I am one of them. I love, I love our trainers. I think they're great, but we have, we have some huge problems with accessibility. So one of them is cost. That's one of the main barriers that we're trying to overcome. And again, this is, this is tough in knowing that trainers are Trainers who are getting certified, who are doing continuing education, who know their stuff should be paid a living wage. The expectation that so many folks have that like trainers should be offering tons of pro bono work and they should be doing all this stuff for free. It's, it's BS and it's toxic and it's really unhelpful. But we also know that a lot of people cannot afford a $150 training session. A lot of my folks that I'm like, oh, we need to talk to a vet about medication, but they can't shell out 400 bucks for a vet behaviorist consultation. That's just not, it's not a possibility for them. It's not a choice. And so being able to offer low cost services to people who need it is really essential. Our, our sort of conundrum is how do we figure out how to offer that while still making sure that training is a good industry for people to work in? Because if we want to bring in more people to work in it, it has to be a good industry to work in, right? So we also have challenges within language barriers, especially in Austin, we have a huge Latinx population and there's a significant portion of them who speak Spanish pretty much only. Um, and so trying to do training in Spanish through you know, the, the child translating when there's a major behavior issue is just, it's not fair. It's a, for, for us, it's sort of a social justice issue where, you know, people deserve access to it just because they're not English speakers doesn't mean they shouldn't have access to qualified support. And same thing is true when it comes to, you know, inclusivity and whether that's racial or ethnic, I think there's, you know, there's something to be said for if all the trainers in your area are white and you are not you're naturally walking into an environment where you may not feel super comfortable. And those are places where we need to really recruit folks and, and build up more trainers and, and training staff who know what they're doing and are not just white people. Because if we're just white people, we're not supporting the rest of our folks the way that we really need to be doing. Same is true for accessibility. You know, a lot of our, our trainers are able-bodied and it's, it's really hard if you struggle with a disability or, you know, any other factors that make you not the kind of like ideal training client that sometimes trainers talk about, like they have these ideas about compliance and about who's going to do what. And sometimes folks with disabilities just don't fit into that, or things are not taught in ways that are accessible to them. And that becomes really problematic. And so for us, it's really not only do we think that that's effective in terms of preventing behavior issues down the line, but we also think that this is, again, that, that social equity issue of everybody deserves to have access to these resources in a way that is appropriate for them versus just here it is. And if you don't like it or can't access it or don't feel comfortable, eh, too bad. Yeah. And those are important conversations to have. I, I became a trainer through a fluke, which not everybody has the same 
opportunities is I was renting a room for like $250 a month that was 15 minutes away from a farm that I got a paid internship at. Like for that to happen, like so many things have to fall into place and I wouldn't have become a trainer otherwise and not everybody gets that same opportunity. And it's expensive to become a trainer and to get those to get those resources. So you mentioned too, like preventive behaviors and, and working on preventive aspects. So what does that mean to you? And what do you build into Every Dog Austin for that to happen? So I'm thinking of like just simple dog body language. Is that part of it? What are some other aspects of that? Yeah, so I think there's a few things. One of them is a strong focus on things like the kindergarten puppy socialization. One of my goals at some point is that every puppy in Austin has access to a puppy kindergarten class run by qualified professionals where they're getting appropriate socialization and learning about appropriate socialization, right? Because doing a puppy class once a week is not, that is, that is not enough. That is not the thing to do. It's not just about playing with other puppies, but, you know, trying to really tackle that socialization period for puppies in Austin is, is, one of the big goals. Another big goal for us from the preventative perspective is ensuring that everybody who adopts a dog has access to a consultation sort of within the first week or two. We know that a lot of times, you know, things show up, people panic. It's usually pretty quick. And so being able to have the initial conversation to set them up for success is really huge. That's, that's one big place. So I think, I think there are a couple of preventative maintenance things in there. It's also looking at some of the problems that we also see commonly and trying to address those early. So knowing that things like reactivity, over arousal behaviors, as well as separation related behaviors, like these are some of the things that tend to get dogs returned that tend to be really hard problems to fix once they kind of become ingrained in a dog. And so figuring out how can we get to people before those become ingrained. And that's a really hard thing, right? So trying to get to every puppy, you know, is already a tough thing, but there are ways that we can do that, but trying to identify like who is, who is struggling with the beginnings of the separation anxiety with their six month old is not an easy task. So that is going to be a long-term effort, but those, those are big things. And, and also just the basic education components. So, you know, everyone with kids and dogs, we wish we could talk to everybody before they entered that situation to say, hey, until your kid is like seven to nine years old, your dog and your kid should be completely separated unless you are actively paying attention to them or you are risking a bite and it's not going to be anybody's fault, right? Like those are things where parents panic. My dog bit my kid. I can't believe it happened. I can't believe my dog did this. And I'm like, I can, I absolutely can. And it's not because your child is awful. Like I'm not saying that, but it's also not because your dog is a monster. In most cases, it's a very understandable bite that happened with lots and lots of warning signals. And if we can set you up with those appropriate expectations in the beginning, you're not going to have the bite and you're going to understand where things are coming from. So doing a lot of these education components is really important. That's where having sort of the free webinars and blog posts, things like that, awesome free, free resources from great trainers all over the place so that people can access them quickly without having to sign up with a trainer. Cause for a lot of people, that's, you know, that's a commitment. They're not sure that they're ready to do that, but if there's a free webinar that they can watch, that's all about kids and dogs and it's run by a CBCC trainer, like cool. That's, that's awesome. So we know we have a lot more work to do when it comes to education and giving people the tools they need to be successful. 
So we're just, you know, we're uh, sort of picking away at it with the places where we actually have control or have the ability to reach people and then continuing to get more information out there. That's awesome. And I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because I'm, I'm reading through, please uh, don't bite the baby book by Lisa oh. right now. And um, the, the lady who's going to be on before you, Lauren Haley, she has, she's one baby and another baby on the way. And that, those are some things that we've talked about. And this is, there's a series I'm doing in my podcast right now about kids and, and dogs. And it, like you mentioned that like the Lassie myth and that that's come up in our conversation of people think you get a puppy and you have a baby and they're just together and they grow up together and it's beautiful and magical and nothing bad is ever going to happen. The reality is dogs are much more like swimming pools than they are like the safety tube, right? And I think that's a big misconception that has happened in our media and our society, much like the myth of love at first sight, right? We all know that doesn't, it can happen, yes. Is that the norm? No, (laughs) Lassie is not the norm. And I think that's where that panic happens and those bites happen because we just don't understand and we have this idea that's just not realistic and truly, is unfair to our dogs. Yeah. And I think one of the things too, that I'll add to that is I find that we, we struggle with the flip side of that too, in that when we know things, we tend to get mad at people who don't know them. And so I hear this a lot from, you know, the rescue community who's like, you know, this poor dog got surrendered because its family were idiots and they were stupid and they allowed the baby to do this. And it's so unethical and this poor dog and all these things. And I'm like, People don't know these things and there are reasons why they don't know them because they've been fed these, you know, this Disney dog thing, like they've been fed these ideas that, that are not correct, but it's not their fault that they didn't know that. And so I think we have to be really cautious about how we provide this information. And even within, I struggle sometimes with the idea of education, because sometimes it sounds like I need to educate you. Like you don't know stuff. You're ignorant. I need to tell you things. You know, I think we do struggle because much like parenting, you know, a lot of people grew up with dogs. And so they're like, I know dogs. And I'm like, no dog behavior is actually like, it's a field. Like (laughs) there's a lot of stuff that the average dog owner just does not know about dogs, but they think they do. Right. But again, it's not their fault. And so figuring out how to communicate to people in a way that doesn't make them feel stupid, doesn't make them feel like it's their fault, right? Like it makes them feel like they have some agency and some control and responsibility, but not in a way that just makes them feel like a monster for not knowing things. And also, especially when it comes to kids and dogs, giving them the agency to set up the environment to work. Because when you tell people you have to constantly monitor your dog and constantly monitor your children and do all of the things, their eyes go wide and they panic understandably because no human is able to focus on all those things at the time. And so that's where I'm a big fan of like, I tell people I'm a lazy trainer. I like to get the biggest bang for my buck. I like to set up the environment to make my life easy so that if I forget things or if I'm not paying attention, it's okay, because I do think it's easy for us to expect too much from people who aren't professionals and don't know these things. And so we have to make it possible, just like if we're asking a dog to do things and they're not doing it, our goal is to think about, okay, how can I motivate them? How can I make it easy for them? How can I break it into small steps? How can I make it 
so that they will succeed, right? Like we, we do this with dogs, but with people, I think we tend to be more like, oh, they just won't do it. Like, you know, they made all the mistakes, all these things that we, we tell people not to do with their dogs and the behavior is the same, right? So I think this is, it's one of those places where we have to acknowledge that there are reasons people don't know these things. And so we have to find ways to get that information out where it's actually going to be taken and be useful rather than getting into a spot where we're just mad at people for the things that they don't know. Yes, I hate the phrase common sense because it's not accurate and not helpful. Just because something comes naturally to you, given your education, your upbringing, how you were parented, if you weren't parented, your personality, you're going to look at something like the old thing is like, 12 different sides of the same thing, right? You standing here with where you came from, you see this, but a person standing over here doesn't see that. And that's also why I'm I'm really, really glad I became a trainer later in life. I was 31. So I went through that process older. And I think when people are in a field a really long time and they're stuck in the lingo in the industry, everything makes sense to them in a way that someone outside the industry in the field doesn't. And that's why in my dog training and education, I try to humanize it as much as possible. And I try to be honest about what I struggle with, because even as a professional dog trainer, I get impatient with my dogs. I always meet their needs. I don't always do right by them. And it's on me to make sure I'm identifying that and doing better constantly because I don't even get it right with all the things that I know. And I have so far to go (laughs) as a person and a trainer. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's something where you know, when we talk about what people's experiences have been, so many people grew up with a Disney dog. Like people, people grew up with a dog who was super tolerant and super easy. And we always say like, you don't, you don't understand what it's like to have a dog with behavior problems until you have one. I know like any of my reactive dog parents, like these dogs or the people that have their off leash dog, oh, don't worry, he's friendly. Like they're not intending to be jerks. They just, it doesn't occur to them. They have no idea. And so, yes, I'm frustrated at them. They're usually breaking laws to do this and they, they should know better. They need to be, they need to be told, they need to be given the information, but it's really hard. A lot of my, you know, behavior dog people say, I, I had no idea until I had my current dog that this kind of thing was real. And so there's so much more that I'm paying attention to now that I, I couldn't have known back then. And so I think that does come with both the kindness to the people who don't know, and also the ability to give people that moral support that says, hey, it's, it's okay if you're not getting everything right all the time, it is okay if you are making mistakes or sometimes you yell at your dog or sometimes you hate your dog, right? Like these are things that, that come with dealing with behavior issues, just like they come with having human friends or partners or children or whomever in your life who's struggling with mental illness or, or disease or, or any kind of different, you know, issue that is sometimes hard to deal with and is not necessarily something that can be easily fixed. Right. So I think one of our big, one of our big goals and, and what we do a lot with our social media is just kind of like pep talks for people who are really upset and anxious and have a lot of feelings around their dog's behavior issues and are coming to terms with, it not necessarily being kind of like that, that train away issue. You know, it's not like potty training. It's not like teaching a dog to lay down. These are, these are long-term things that are not easy and it's really hard to emotionally make peace with that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Cause I think, and this is something else that our society does very, very poorly 
is there's a grief process to that too of, oh, this isn't what I expected. This isn't the dog that I expected. This is really, really hard. And I don't think we human beings in our American society allow ourselves to feel those feelings and process that for what it is, which is grief. You're mourning what you thought you had and what you have to let go of so that you can better move forward. Yeah, absolutely. That's something where I often joke that half of my job is just crushing people's hopes and dreams for their dog, but then also telling them that it's okay to let go of those hopes and dreams. I, you know, I had a a really awesome client whose dog was struggling at dog parks because he was guarding tennis balls and guarding his mom and just like really struggling. And I was like, I don't, I don't think this is a dog park dog. And honestly, the behaviors you're describing are not easy ones for us to fix because there are so many variables. And so I I don't know that he's going to be a dog park dog. Like, I think he might just be done with that. And she really struggled with that and then came back to it and was like, I think I've known this for a while that he wasn't enjoying it and I wasn't enjoying it. And so now I know it's okay to not take him to the dog park and to do something else that's fun for both of us. And so I think, again, with that idea of like the lassie dog, there's so many expectations of like, my dog will do this and my dog will come to the patio bar with me and my dog will do this and we'll meet strangers and we'll meet other dogs and and we'll go for five walks a day and we'll go for hikes. And then they get a dog who can't do some of those things and they panic. And not only are they mad at their dog for that, so they have to go through the grief process, but they're also mad at themselves because they think that they should be able to fix it and that they're not being good dog parents if they don't do that. And so figuring out how to balance the like, no, your dog who attacks other dogs should not go to the dog park. And also balancing the, it's okay if you don't go to the dog park. Like my dog doesn't go to the dog park because she is very selective and is an idiot with her body language with other dogs. So she'll get herself in trouble. You know, it's just not a good, not a good fit, but that doesn't mean her quality of life is suffering, right? There are other things that we can do, but it is something that even for me, I have to emotionally deal with like, Hey, I have a selective dog and she's not always predictable. And I wish, I wish I could take her different places with me, but I I can't, you know, and that's, that's a big thing with talking to our clients is just setting those, resetting those expectations and letting people know it's okay to have that grief process. You know, that's part of our job is to normalize that for people that it, it's okay to be frustrated about those things. And that there's lots and lots of people going through similar things. Yeah. I have to have those conversations with people a lot because they think that, doggy daycares, dog parks, and dog bars are socialization and should be appropriate for every dog. And I see a lot of trauma as a result of that thinking. So my go-to every single time is, do you like every other person or are there people that you like, you want to punch in the face? And they're like, oh, that, that gets it. Like, that oh, makes yeah. sense. Yep. There's people mm-hmm. I want to punch in the face. I'm like, your dog yep. is no different. It is okay that they're selective is okay. But I also just see a lot of trauma from like a puppy or a nervous dog being thrown into those environments. Yep. And it's a lot of work to undo that. Yeah, absolutely. And I I do think, you know, I know we were going to talk a little bit today about sort of training versus behavior, but I think this is one of the most common things where we do get clients who reach out to us and they say, my dog is not doing well at daycare or my dog is not doing well at the dog park. And it's not an issue of my dog is jumping up onto people and being rude or my dog is stealing food or my dog is, you know, barking at strangers. It is an issue of my dog is not getting along with other dogs. Can you please fix it? 
And those are the places where it's like, for one thing, you know, we have different personalities Not everybody wants to do that. I, my example is always like, some people like Coachella, some people like dinner parties, like not everyone wants to go to Burning Man and that's okay. But I, I do think that there's often this perception with behavior issues that it's a matter of training. And so there's this idea that anything that's going wrong with our dogs can be trained and can be fixed. And that is just, not only is it a misconception, but it's really harmful because it puts trainers in awful positions and it puts humans in awful positions where they're looking for trainers who give them guarantees where they often get into a lot of trouble there and make behavior issues worse. They have this emotional idea that they should be able to fix it. It delays that grieving process and that acceptance process. And it, it could not, it's so frustrating to me when I see those things where again, it's like my dog attacks other dogs. I'm looking for someone to fix it so that my dog can go to the dog park. And these are things where yes, sometimes there's a major behavior issue that has relatively simple underpinnings that we can fix, right? That like, sometimes we get really lucky and this happens, you know, my dog is attacking other dogs. It's awful. And it's just a, you know, food bowl guarding where I'm like, we'll feed them in separate rooms. This is not that big of an issue, right? Like we can solve this. It's still not a training thing. It's still, it's still a management thing. Um, but I think there's this really strong misconception that, you know, my dog is really reactive because he's, you know, terrified of other dogs, or he's been over aroused for his entire life and gets way too excited and screams like a banshee when he sees other dogs, just more like my dog. And, you know, I, can someone fix it? And I, I think for me, a lot of this comes back to giving the analogy of if you had a partner, a friend, a family member who struggled with something like anxiety or who struggled with, you know, any kind of mental illness or a disability, you know, these are things where we don't necessarily expect to fix them. Like, you know, you get, you get um, strep throat and we give you an antibiotic and we expect that the strep throat goes away. Right. And those are the things where it's like, okay, if your dog needs to learn how to sit or you want them to spin, or they're learning how to go potty outside, that's like the, we give you an antibiotic 10 days later, it's, it's fixed. Right. But when we deal with some of these more serious things, just like, you know, if, if you're struggling with diabetes, it's not like we can just do something in two weeks and it goes away. Like that's something that you manage over time. And you know that sometimes you might have flare ups, sometimes things might go wrong. But if you're careful about, you know, how you treat it and you, you know, look for the best options, you can try and make sure that it, it happens as infrequently as possible and that you're as, as well managed as you can be. And I think with a lot of our behavior issues, that's really the the better kind of analogy for us is that we are trying to make the behavior issues lessened. We are using some training. We are often using medication. We are almost always using a ton of management in avoiding triggers, but dogs, you know, major personalities and anxieties and all these other things don't just go away. It's not a training issue. These are behavior issues and those are not the same thing. They're often not the same people who know how to do that. There are plenty of people that I totally trust to teach basic manners or even to, you know, handle the knucklehead, you know, teenage dog who's getting into everything and, and has lots of sort of nuisance behavior issues. But when we get into, you know, fear, anxiety, aggression, any of this kind of stuff, it is just 
not a quick fix. And sometimes it's not a fix at all. Sometimes it is, you know, a lifetime management treatment situation. And that's really hard for people to accept. But I think there's a lot in our culture where, you know, people are like, I'm going to find a trainer who's going to train my dog not to be aggressive. And that is just unhelpful for all of us a lot of the time. And so a lot of what we end up having to do is, is resetting those expectations. And again, it feels like crushing dreams sometimes, but it also means that we can help reset those expectations so that people don't constantly feel like they or their dog are failing to meet expectations. Yes. This just, it's remind me of, I worked at a doggy daycare for six months and it was, it was a kennel free doggy daycare, which is a whole nother conversation, but a dog came in and the owners had spent 3000 plus dollars on this dog and had him on a, a, a choke collar. He'd been trained with aversive techniques and they're like, he's going to be good with other dogs. Now we spent all this money on training. So they were like, okay, we'll test him. They brought in a very calm, you know, even keeled dog. As soon as that, that choke collar came off that dog, he just immediately attacked. So it was, and they were just, they, the owners were just a bubbling mess of emotions with that news and just not being accepted to daycare. And I think that's a big example too of training versus behavior. That dog had all the training and it was going to yeah. stop at every door. And, you know, but it was also a quivering mess of anxiety even before it entered the building. The behaviors were, were what made him unable to attend doggy daycare. And the owners were absorbing that as they had failed or they had done something wrong instead of like, it's just not for him and that's okay. Yeah. I think sometimes it's almost like we have to look at the difference between, you know, your middle school teacher and your therapist, right? They, they do different things. One of them is for teaching you new cool stuff and interesting things about the world. Um, or maybe not super interesting things about the world, depending on what class you're in and what you like. But, you know, your therapist is the one who helps you work through your ADHD, right? Like these are, these are different things and expecting to go to school and have that fix, you know, the, the struggles that you're having, you know, emotionally or mentally, like that's just not how it works. You know, they, we know that for humans, right? Or at least most of us know that, but with our dogs, we think, you know, we send them to school and they learn sit, stay, heal, and that will fix their reactivity or their aggression or, you know, the fact that they heard small children. And there, you know, there are a lot of things that we can do, right? There are a lot of times where we can use training to help with different behavior issues. But there are times where we can't, just like there are times where, you know, your school teacher is not going to solve your child's emotional issues. You know, that's why we have other professionals, but I think that that's one of the main places where because dog training is so unregulated and because there is so much absolute crap out there, of course, people think that that's how it works. You know, that's what they see on TV. That's what they see in all kinds of common stuff on the internet. So again, it's, it's not their fault, but we need to identify ways that we can help provide that information and, and reset expectations about what our professionals can do and what we can't do. You know, I can't, I can't fix your dog. I wish I had a magic wand. I don't, I, I really wish that I did. And I think there's a big disservice in our field when trainers take on cases that they're not equipped to handle. And that's when people ask me, you know, about some behavior issues. I'm like, it depends if you need some help on, you know, getting your dogs acclimated to a certain extent, depending on the aggression there, maybe, 
but I don't know. And I refer a lot of cases out because there are a lot of things that are outside of my wheelhouse. And I think trainers need to get more comfortable in our profession in general of humanizing yourselves and also being honest with your clients when you need to refer them out. And what often happens with me is when I say, hey, I need to send you somewhere else, my clients respect that and still continue to have a com or like a relationship with me and instead of throwing me aside because I am being honest with them because I am keeping them abreast of what my skills are and I think sometimes we can get stuck in oh they're I'm going to lose all the clients if I don't take all the cases you just get better quality cases that are are more suited to your skills is what's happening yeah because there's there's nothing worse <laughs> When, than having a case where you feel stuck and you don't know what to do and you feel like you're not helping them. And this is going to happen when you treat behavior cases, right? Because we can't fix all the things. But I, I do think that there's been more of a focus on, on sort of tag teaming cases as well. And that's one of my favorite things. So, you know, not a lot of my clients work with a veterinary behaviorist. And so being able to make sure that we're on the same page about what's going on and kind of have a targeted approach, as well as, you know, separation anxiety has become such an issue now. I love having clients where, you know, we're working on their reactivity and their guarding and this other thing, but they're also working with a certified separation anxiety trainer on their separation anxiety. And so, you know, would those things influence one another, but I'm not a specialist in separation anxiety. And that trainer is not an expert in, you know, the other pieces that we're working on. So we're able to provide more cohesive care, especially with these behavior cases where there's just a lot going on. And we, you know, we see that fairly frequently. I wish we didn't, but a lot of times we see these dogs who had just have a multitude of different, different things going on. And they really need that more comprehensive approach. So how would you define the differences? You've, you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but I wanted to see um, how would you define the difference between like behavior and when to look for a behaviorist versus training? So like training might be like a place instead of jumping on the counters, right? And yeah, how would you break that down? Yeah, so we, when I think about this, I tend to think about training as either I want my dog to learn new cool stuff, which is fun, or I'm having some issues like counter surfing, you know, we're struggling a little bit with potty training, we're, you know, we're struggling with the dog jumping up, you know, any of these other things where there doesn't appear to be sort of an, an emotional issue behind it. And I'm, I'm, you know, always a little bit hesitant from the, you know, applied behavior analysis perspective to like assign emotions to things. But we, we know that when we're seeing things like aggression, we're seeing lots of fearfulness, lots of anxiety or stress, you know, any of these behaviors that, especially if they have a safety component, right? Anything like that, or anything that is uh, dealing with a lot of anxiety and stress, those are the things where I want people to look for someone who has experience working with those kinds of cases. I think part of it is there's a lot of confusion over the naming conventions, again, because anybody can call themselves anything. I see a lot of people call themselves behaviorists. And for me, the only people who get to be behaviorists in the United States are veterinary behaviorists and people with PhDs who have the CAAB certification, right? So for me, there's nobody who's a behaviorist except for those guys in the States. In the UK, it's totally different, right? But anyone can do it. It's not a legal designation. There's also, you know, anyone can call themselves a trainer or a behavior consultant. People use the term behavioralist, which is actually 
has a totally different history, but there are plenty of great people out there who are trainers who are also great at dealing with behavior, but not all of them are. And so these are the things where it's, yes, I think that there are certain circumstances where looking for a CBCC or a CDBC, looking for, you know, a certified behavior consultant is a really good idea because they're expected to have a, a minimum of understanding. There are also great trainers out there who are going to have the same minimum of understanding, but it requires you know, kind of digging into what they know and what kinds of cases that they deal with. There are lots of trainers who are like, I'll take basic reactivity, but as soon as there's a bite or an incident or something else like that, I will not deal with it. Um, so there's a wide range. It's hard for consumers to know with those things. Um, it's also totally okay to look for referrals. So if you have a vet behaviorist in your area that you're interested in working with, seeing if they have trainers or behavior consultants that they work with, um, can often be really helpful because again, they, they often have some people in their community who they know are, are legit and work with true behavior cases. Um, a lot of trainers won't touch separation anxiety. I don't know exactly what it is, but a lot of trainers are really afraid of separation anxiety. So finding a certified a CSAT for that can be really, um, really beneficial. But I, I think that's one of the things for people to understand when when they have a training issue versus a behavior issue are things like, is there aggression? Is there fear? Is there reactivity? Is this more than just my dog is bored? My dog is frustrated. My dog is doing naughty things that I don't like versus my dog is doing things that feel like it's a potential risk or feel like they're struggling, you know? And I think people generally are pretty good at that. Um, you know, people can say, oh, my dog's tail is tucked and she shivers every time we go outside. Yeah. You don't need just training. You need behavior modification. You need behavior support. Um, so I, I think that that's a big, a big piece of a big piece of it is recognizing, is this something where there's potentially an emotional component or potentially a safety component to this? And those are the times where I'm like, you're looking for behavior support, not just training support. And you have to be aware that there may not be a, a fix or a quick fix to your behavior issue. Absolutely. And I do have to point out here for areas like where I am in Arkansas and more rural areas, there aren't behaviorists or even veterinarian or veterinary behaviorists. So when I do have to refer out, I will send them to, you know, folks like you or elsewhere because of the Zoom component, which 2020 yeah. people understand that they could do. Uh, that's a big thing here. Also too, a lot of, none of the shelters here have trainers on staff or behaviorists on staff at all. So that can be really challenging um, in more rural areas, but with the internet, it's a good way to connect. And I do want to encourage folks who need help to not be afraid of doing a Zoom appointment. Or yeah. Appointment. So many people think that behavior issues are solved by a trainer coming in and looking at the dog or putting their hands on the dog. And most of the cases, that's just not going to be a thing anyway. If your dog is terrified of strangers and that's what we're working through, like, I'm not going to come and take your dog and fix your dog like that. <laughs> I'm a stranger. They're going to be scared of me. That makes no sense. Um, so I think oftentimes people think a Zoom or, or a virtual consult is going to be less effective than in person. And I find that for 
most of my cases, it is actually more effective. There are some things where I go, oh, I wish we could be in person to do this thing. Um, but most of the time, I don't think that's the case. They take clients from all over the place, you know, working behavior things all virtually. And especially for the first consult, we, we only do virtual for our first consults because I want to know what's going on. I want to come up with a plan before we get there. Um, especially if there are potential safety concerns, things like that. I want to make sure that we're setting up management and everything else. So I, you know, I think that there's still some hesitancy over the idea that it's, it's not going to work as well, but that comes from that kind of outdated idea that like the trainer will take the dog and fix the dog versus the trainer will help you identify strategies and give you skills and, you know, troubleshoot and all these things, which with a behavior issue in particular is always going to be the strategy, even if we're there in person. So I, I think this idea of the hands-on, you know, and I understand, you know, it's this idea, like the TV trainer takes the dog and then, you know, chokes the heck out of it. And then the dog sort of submits and, and lays there terrified on the floor and yay, end of episode, it's fixed. But in, in real life training, like most of the time, I'm not going to touch your dog anyway. That's not, I mean, I might cuddle your dog if it's friendly towards strangers, because that's great. Um, but most of the time, I'm not the one who's handling your dog and doing the fixes. I'm just telling you how to do it. So I think, I think virtual training is one of the most underutilized things. And it's so great for folks who are in areas where there are not, you know, not great trainers around there. I would much rather have people look at Zoom than just, you know, settle for somebody who might be close by who does not have methods that, that you feel comfortable with. Yes. And yeah, that's a big thing here. Of you send the dog away for a couple of weeks and it comes back fixed. And usually what it is, it's a repressed shutdown dog, not a fixed dog. Yep. It's yep. whole other thing. Yep. Well, uh, well, Miranda, that was all of my questions. Was there anything else you wanted to add? I think my only, my only last thing is just a shameless plug that again, we're hoping to do more cool stuff in the community and we would love support. So if if folks are interested in donating, we are a 501c3 nonprofit. We also have really cool t-shirts on our website that say dog training is for everyone and they're super duper comfy. Um, so if you wanted to buy one, feel free to do that. And then we post on Instagram and Facebook at Every Dog Austin. Um, and we would love to see folks out there. If anybody has questions or wants to reach out, you know, we're happy to talk behavior anytime um, and would love to connect with people. So even if you're not in Austin, Texas, you know, feel free come say hi, um, ask us questions, tell us what you want to see on social media, things like that. And we're, we're happy to do that. Perfect. And what was your website? It's everydogaustin.org. Okay, perfect. Yep. Well, Miranda, I'm going to go ahead and do the little sign off. Then I have a question for you at the end. Yeah. This has been Telltale Dog, the podcast with me, your host, Elizabeth Silverstein, and my guest today, Miranda Hitchcock. Music has been provided by Jim Chiago of Seven Second Chance. Find more of his work on iTunes and Spotify and stick around for after the music for some final advice from Miranda. Miranda, there's so much conflicting information out there. I know I always see people polling the social media world for advice. I see a lot of bad advice given. How should a dog guardian or owner begin their journey for getting affordable help? 
Yeah, I think one of the first things is how to get professional help from people who know what they're doing. So looking for certified behavior consultants and looking for certified positive reinforcement trainers uh, is a great place to start. Once you do that, it can be really great to find those people on social media or find those people in their programs. A lot of folks are doing podcasts. They're doing informative stuff on social media. They're doing webinars, things like that. So you can find some great free resources to start with to at least figure out kind of what you need and where you are in your journey. So it's a matter of finding the people who are qualified and then finding those people on social media, kind of being aware of what what you're taking in through that process. Um, and then looking for trainers in your area um, or looking for trainers that have the right skill set and do virtual work and just kind of shopping around for pricing. You know, some folks are going to be expensive, but it might be the one consult that you need to, to set things up. Training is not always affordable, but looking in your area to see if there are nonprofits or organizations who can help with that. But the biggest thing is look for those great free and low cost resources from trainers that you know you can trust because they're certified, you know, and if people are struggling to figure out what certifications they need, or they're not sure if a trainer has weird red flags in their website, things like that, we are always happy to help hunt that down. We like helping people find the right people. Um, so I think that's really the first step is finding some people you can trust, who you know, know what they're doing, and then following them and seeing what kinds of resources they offer.